Hello Internet, Mike here. It is a brisk 35 degrees in suburban Columbus, Ohio, shooting for a high of 44 today, which uh, oddly enough feels super warm. Um, although I've heard uh, our friends in, in California have been suffering a very cold, very cold spell uh, of weather that there's actually been some snow, which, which is amazing. Yeah, Brea, right now it's 51 degrees. Um, <laughs> but with a high tomorrow of 81. Dang. So, so it is, uh, it is early March and we are, uh, we are still adjusting to the very schizophrenic Midwest weather where it is 60 and sunny one day and then two days later it snows. Um, absolutely crazy, but, um, we're glad that, that you're tuning in. We're glad you're here. Uh, just a couple of quick things. Number one, if you have not, could you like us? Uh, could you like our page, Vox Podcast page on Facebook? Uh, would you rate us uh, five stars on uh, iTunes? Uh, if you're curious about how to support the podcast, um, we have a Patreon page, uh, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and that is uh, a place where a um, hundred and some folks um, support the the podcast and um and they're different you know it's like it's like the the fund the funding sort of websites there are different levels of rewards and different gifts and all those sorts of things so one of the things that um i'll be doing uh today or tomorrow is recording another revelation podcast that's for certain level if you're interested in that so you can uh you can check that out uh the second thing i want to say is today um is is i have to give almost a bible geek warning um, like, like if you're unsure about the Bible or you have loads of questions about it, I mean, this will be helpful, I think, but, um, but this is like, this is stuff for Bible nerds and, uh, of which I am at the head of that line. Um, one of the things that, that I've done as someone who's taught this and studied this for, for years and years and years is I get asked a lot of questions about, um, how, how I study and how I see it and, you know, so on, so on, so on. So instead of just reading a couple of those, I thought, I thought every now and again, we just talk about, um, how you study the scriptures and, um, in hope, in the hope that this is helpful to somebody along, uh, the way. Now, when, when I listen to teaching, so this includes, uh, uh, live, you know, you're, you're sitting at a church building and listening to somebody, or you're listening to a, you know, preaching podcast. If you're just listening to a podcast like this, I don't evaluate this as like preaching or teaching or whatever. Uh, this is way more conversational. This is way more informal, um, has a totally different set of expectations and, and I think sort of a genre rules that you follow. Um, but, would, but if I'm listening to someone giving a teaching in a church or like a sermon podcast, or something. Uh, one of the first questions I uh, am always seeking to try to figure out is what does this, so it can be anybody, but what does this person trust to do the work of the teaching? Uh, and, you know, I know most of our listeners are very familiar with kind of the sermon form. But um, as I evaluate teachers or as I seek to develop teachers, I'm always looking for what, what do people trust when they're teaching? What do people trust to do the work? So, so, so some teachers uh, will trust uh, their, their personality. 
Um, some teachers will trust a really powerful story that they close with. Um, some teachers will trust the really cute outline. And I don't mean cute in a bad sense, but like memorable or, um, you know, the fill in the blanks with the same, well, with words that all begin with the same letter. Uh, but, but it's very tempting when you're up there to trust something to do the work, right? So it's, it's either your cadence, your gifting, um, your personality. It could be killer illustrations. It could be, um, you know, your, your uh, lots of wisdom and personal stories you're sharing, and then a couple Bible verses tacked on. So I'm always looking for what a person is, is trusting. And the people that I, I listen to most uh, and trust most are the people that trust the text to do the work. In other words, Yes, there are basic rules of communication that we use to hold people's intention, to hold people's attention, not intention, um, to hold people's attention, uh, basic rules, <coughs> excuse me, that we uh, used to engage, keep people engaged in the material, uh, help make it memorable. Uh, I'm not talking about that. Of course we do that. But very often it's easy to trust in those sorts of things to kind of carry the emotional weight or do the emotional spiritual work of a teaching rather than just simply the public reading and exposition of the text. And so um, I'm always very suspicious because I've been one of these people uh, of folks who trust something other that, that <coughs> pardon me, that you can tell that they're trusting something other than the text to do the work. It's like the text needs um, uh, some help. It needs some jazzing up and, and agreed. There are some things that you're preaching that, you know, if you're preaching a genealogy um, or you're slogging through the book of uh, Leviticus, I'm all for helping that out uh, in, in terms of relevance and attention and those sorts of things. But um, but very often I find that teachers and and again I'm I'm I've been guilty of this um, won't just trust the 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 text to do the work they 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 have to add to it. And so one of the things that I try to practice myself and I try to encourage in others um, are, are seeing, it's not making the text come to life when you're teaching, but it's showing the life in the text. Because if you, if you have a high view of the scriptures, somewhere along the line, you believe that this thing is, is living and active, it's inspired, whatever word you want to use for it. If you're not there yet, that's fine. Uh, the stuff we're going to talk about today, I think, will be really helpful. But um, if you if you're one of those that you you kind of hold it as some sort of authority, then uh, we've got to believe that that that's what does the text. That somehow the the inner the inner working of the community of God, the Spirit of God, and the and the Word of God. Um, all kind of work together to do the work. And, and the goal of a human teacher is, of course, to, to filter this through our life, to, to help people stay engaged and, and bring clarity um, and relevance, those sorts of things. But that's not our primary focus. Our, our, our primary focus is to let the text speak. And to let it speak um, in different ways. So, so I always, and I, I hope this is interesting to some of you at least, I always um, think that every text, no matter where it is in the Bible, every text has at least six different dimensions to it. Now, uh, some of them are clearer than others. Some of them more obviously have some than others. But but I've kind of learned over the course of... of uh, uh, many years that there is a kind of a uh, a way in which uh, I've learned to see the text 
and um, in order to see the life in it, to bring forth the life that is in it. And so, so I always, and, and you know, I wish there was a cooler name for this, but I always look at a text and say, okay, I, I, I think there are at least six dimensions in this text. And it can be a narrative part. It can be a poetic part. It can be a section of Proverbs. It can be an apocalyptic part like Revelation. So uh, I want to go through these six in the hope that, you know, maybe something spurs some thought or maybe this is helpful somewhere along the way. Again, if you're not a Bible geek, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> but I, I get enough questions about it that I felt like it was worth doing a, uh, a podcast over. So uh, I always evaluate myself and other teachers by what do they trust to do the work? You know, is it their pithy, tweetable statements that they trust to do the work? Is it, is it a self-help moralism they trust to do the work? And, and if you pay attention, you can pretty clearly kind of determine. I want to be somebody and I want to listen and be formed by people who are formed in turn by the text. The, the, the text is leading the conversation. Well, what does that mean? Well, I think it's respecting, honoring, or you know, digging through one or more of these different dimensions that I think every text has. So, uh, first dimension is uh, very creatively named the historical dimension, and uh, this is something we're getting into on the pod, uh, the Revelation podcast. Is that I th- I think every text in the scriptures would have been understandable to its audience that that it was for them before it's for us that the way God chose to communicate at least through the written word uh, was heavily enculturated and so that means that there was a human author there was a human audience there was a setting there was something in the human author's mind about about what occasioned this text of course I believe the spirit of God uh, guided and illuminated I, I absolutely but I do think because God, God's word is incarnated, not just in Jesus of Nazareth, but God's word is incarnated in, you know, Peter's letters and Paul's letters and, you know, the, the, the um, chronologies of numbers and, you know, those sorts of things. I, I, I want to respect the fact that um, these, w- these things would have made sense to their original audience. So that doesn't mean there can't be some other fulfillment of them in the future that only makes sense once Jesus is here because we see the New Testament authors, you know, pillaging motifs and passages from the Old Testament uh, and seeing Jesus in them once Jesus, you know, had risen from the dead. So I'm not saying that there aren't other fulfillments of certain texts, but but at the very minimum, the place we start, and this is the place where I think we don't always do a great job, is that this text wasn't dealing with my my um, my therapeutic issues. This text wasn't dealing um, with my doubts. This text wasn't originally dealing with some sort of um, some sort of issue in my life. This text was written as part of God's covenant unfolding of his character, of his, um, of his desires for human flourishing. And I have to respect that and honor that before, because that, that then provides the boundaries before I then march into well, what does this verse mean to me? So, so I, I do think there is a really, really important step that a lot of people miss that we, that, you know, I mean, even last week I'm, I'm hearing, um, uh, some incredible stuff, but it's all shaped around, well, what happens when you're disappointed? And, and sure, that's a part of it, <laughs> but, but that wasn't what he was dealing with when he originally wrote this thing. And so I think there's this really, there's this really heady rush 
um, for people to kind of run into um, uh, the the you know the immediate application to my individual soulish growth um, instead of honoring that whole dimension. So so you know when we talk about David and Goliath, right? Um, and that gets turned into well, who are your giants? Um, I just I have a problem with that. I don't. I don't think that's the point of the David and Goliath story, right? Uh, or when I, I heard a teaching about um, there's a blank page between the Old Testament and New Testament, and and um, and during that blank page, there are 400 years of historical activity, and it's awesome. But then the point was made. Okay, well, what's your blank page? Where's God not speaking? And and, and I and I I get that, and and I respect that. But I just think it jumps the very important part of well, <laughs> what 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 was going on then that the audience would have understood and and appreciated and kind of taken for granted in their time. So so people disagree with me here. That's fine. For me, I just think this is one of the most significant parts that um, uh, that is missing in American teaching. Uh, we we rush to the application to my individual you know therapeutic spiritual growth, and we're not honoring. Um, how the original audience would have heard this. And so a lot of what I've tried to do over the course of years has been to say, okay, so how would the original audience have heard this and, and make that, make that um, a central piece of a teaching? Um, and, and I learned this from you know, guys who are um, incredible at this. Um, and, and, and then for me, you know, of course that branches out into, okay, so what's this mean for me? But that's not where you start. So that's the historical dimension. It was for them before it was for us. Uh, the second dimension is the literary dimension. And, and that is that we don't interpret the Bible flatly. We don't even interpret it liter literally. We've talked about this before. We interpret the Bible literarily, as has been said by many people and many times, that, that, there is, that there are different genres, literary genres, that have their own rules and forms and functions, uh, and those have to be respected in order to be understood. The classic, the best example of this is the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation would have made sense to its original audience. You did not need to know Saddam Hussein or Apache helicopters to make sense of its imagery. Um, in like the, there are something like 404 verses, and 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 somebody uh, said there are you know over uh, 400 Old Testament allusions or symbols or quotes. Uh, the 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 book is uh, uh, an, 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 uh, um, I'm, I'm losing the name, a apocalyptic book. And uh, uh, apocalyptic literature was a very common form of literature um, four or five hundred years or so around the time of Jesus on either side. And there are certain conventions that are used. And when you read other apocalyptic works written by Jewish folks, you begin to see that Revelation plays by a lot of those rules, right? But, but we just think we can interpret it flatly and that all we need to understand Revelation um, is just some little bit of decoding work about something in the Middle East or the European Union, and, uh, and then we've got it. That is so not true. So you interpret historical you know, reporting different than you interpret poetry. 
differently than you interpret a parable, differently than you interpret an apocalypse or prophecy. And so, so the literary dimension of the text, you just have to be super careful that, that we don't read the Bible just flatly like, oh, here's Leviticus, boom, I can pull this out, apply it to my life. Here's a little bit in Deuteronomy. Um, here's 2 Chronicles. If you know people call on my name, I will come and rescue them. Well, there, there, there are different ways of understanding these different texts that have to be respected. So you just can't read uh, the text, the whole Bible, as if it were flat and immediately translatable in the 21st century uh, American thought. And so if you're interested in more about this, there are two really, really good introductory books that I highly recommend. One's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And the next one is called How to Read the Bible Book by Book. And they're both by Gordon Fee, F-E-E, and Douglas Stewart. And uh, I highly, highly recommend them if you're interested in more about um, kind of the idea of genre, that Song of Solomon um, as, as love poetry um, is different than for Samuel, which is kind of historical record, but a unique kind of historical record, which is different than uh, the, the really interesting biographies of, of Jesus um, written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John is so different. So what's John doing that the other three aren't? And those are all really, really important questions. But when you get to a text, you, you realize first it was for them before it was for for us and the way that text is written it was it was written for a reason that way and and there were conventions that governed how people would understand the text written in those ways like genealogies are a great example genealogies carried a ton of weight but you have to understand why they carried a ton of weight before you appreciate why they're sitting in there and what do they mean to us so first dimension is historical second dimension is literary third dimension is the narrative dimension and um, and this one is being more and more appreciated, I think, these days, that, that, um, that, that the Bible is actually a unified story told through a library of different works in different genres, but really centered on this figure, Jesus of Nazareth, as God's Messiah to bless the nations. And, um, and so, so there is a unified story here. Now, boy, it gets convoluted because it deals with human people. And, and I mean, it's dealing with redemptive history. So you've got ups and downs and things going sideways all over the place. And that's actually one of the reasons why I really enjoy the Bible is because it's so ruthlessly honest about the failings of God's people. And, and it doesn't seek to eliminate all mystery and tension, but it actually allows those things to exist. But I think in teaching very often, we kind of myopically look at just little bitty segments and we're not connecting everything to the bigger story. And, and so it's kind of like watching a movie, right? That, that there's a purpose behind the way the story is told. And so sometimes in the middle of a movie, um, you're sitting there going, okay, I, I don't understand why this is relevant. And it's not till later that you go, oh, okay, that's what they were setting up. I totally got it. And, and that's if it's a good movie. It's a bad movie. You know, there are all these non sequiturs in there and you have no idea uh, why they're there. But a really well done movie is told in a very specific reason, in a very specific order. And, and, and uh, the way the movie unfolds, there's a lot of thought behind it. And so we, I, I take that same assumption about the scriptures. There's a reason um, the, the story unfolds the way that it does. And so part of the reason why I think um, people these days don't really find the Bible approachable is they don't have that sort of that, that eagle eye, like high view 
of, um, of what the biblical story turns out to be. They don't know how to put the individual pieces in it. You know, it'd be like a puzzle without the box top that tells you how to how it fits together. So I think um, in in every text, whether it's a genealogy, whether it's a, a a commandment about a festival, whether it's you know one of Paul's letters, there there is a narrative dimension. How does this fit into the bigger story? And that can often bring all sorts of uh, interesting points uh, to the forefront. Um, fourthly. And this is, uh, again, non-creatively titled, but uh, you've got the historical dimension, the literary dimension, the narrative dimension, uh, and then something I call the subversive dimension. I love the word subversive. I can't help myself. Uh, But every text, I've come to learn, and I believe this, every text was revolutionary for its day. And so you're reading like in Deuteronomy, you're reading like, oh, rules for how to treat prisoners. And, you know, if, if somebody gets hurt, they have to do this many oxen. And I mean, it's just, but, but then when you dig back in to what, what little we know, and it can always be overturned by other evidence, but, but the picture that is almost uniformly painted, uh, particularly by the Old Testament in its relationship to ancient Near Eastern literature and culture is that the Bible was far ahead of its time. So, for instance, um, you know, you take a very controversial passage in the New Testament, something like "Wives submit to your husbands," and that's a we've we've looked at that text um, on the podcast. I don't know months ago, but um, you take that "Wives submit to your husbands," and then the command to husbands love your wives, and this whole thing that Paul does in Ephesians chapter five. It sounds so brutal to us and so archaic and so whatever. And uh, But in actuality, when you look at what was demanded, wives submit to your husbands, that was, man, that was normal. I mean, of course, that's what they're there for. I mean, that was codified into Roman law. But, but what was so revolutionary um, of what Paul was saying wasn't the part to wives. The part that would have been so offensive was the part to husbands. The command that husbands love your wives, get, give yourself up for her, love her as you would love your own body. I mean, these things were so outlandish. It was one of the reasons why many more women flocked to the early Jesus movement than men. Um, the command to love your wives, I mean, was was revolutionary for its day. For us, it's like, well, of course. But they would never have taken that for granted. And so... Uh, for me, one of the one of the most fascinating parts of understanding the Bible has come from learning that that yes, it's historical, literary, narrative. Yep, yep, yep. But the, it, but but it's subversive. That that like we've talked about on the show before. There's it's pl- it, it's honoring the forms of its culture, but it's planting the seeds for the overthrow of those forms, right? So with you take you take slavery or 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 you take male and female relationships or um, um, how people will relate to to God as Abba Father. I mean, all of that was just revolutionary for its day. It doesn't seem revolutionary for our day, but that's because our day has been formed by what was revolutionary back then. So to me, um, there is an arc of uh, about sexuality in the scriptures. There is an arc um, uh, about slavery, about women's roles. There's there there's progress. There's development. Um, and so you can you know I, I'd love more questions on this if you're interested. I just don't want to assume that there are a ton of people who are. Uh, but this part is the part that really makes for um, a lot of surprises, um, you know. And and you can see, of course, if you're if you're somebody listening who teaches, 
the Bible in any capacity whatsoever, you can see where sometimes you're really going to get into the historical dimension for a teaching. Sometimes it's a literary dimension. Sometimes it's the narrative dimension. Uh, sometimes it's the subversive dimension. And um, because what you want to, what, what what we're doing, of course, is just showing the life in the text. We're not we're not bringing something to the text where it's like, okay, I got to talk on trust, so I'm looking for a verse that talks about trust. You can do it that way. God loves it. That no problem. God will honor it. But but I think there's something more powerful about demonstrating how the text is leading the conversation, about showing that you actually trust the text to do the work. That if that and this is and this is really the test case. Do you believe that you could get up and read the book of Philippians or read the Sermon on the Mount or slowly and creatively read 1 Corinthians 13 and and that would be awesome? Do we believe that or do we believe that, well, no, the whole thing kind of needs me to jazz it up? And and the only reason I know this is a temptation is because I've given into it many times. Um, uh, and, and I think there is precedent for why we explain the text and interpret the text and and bring relevance to the text or show relevance to the text rather. Um, but but it's just fascinating how often we're turning to something else uh, to do the work through a text. So. Uh, so those are the first four, uh, fifth and sixth, and then I'll wrap this up. Um, if you want to dig in more, I'd love to, uh, but I'll wait for specific feedback before I do that. All right. The gospel, there is a gospel dimension, <laughs> which sounds so, of course there is. Um, but, but here's what I mean, or, or maybe a Christological dimension, Christology is this obviously the study of Jesus the Christ. So when I say there's a gospel dimension to it, what I mean is the, the Bible isn't a book of, primarily the Bible isn't a book of wisdom. The Bible isn't a book of life advice. The Bible isn't a book of how to overcome your fears and reach your full potential. The Bible isn't a book about your self-help at all. It's about, uh, the Bible is primarily about the message uh, of the good news uh, that is good news uh, about the, the, the work that God is doing in Christ to reclaim the world. And so, I, I think that in every text, and, and you know, sometimes you have to connect it to larger chunks to show this, but there is a gospel-centeredness to it. And, and, and what I mean by that is that the Bible isn't a moralistic book. The Bible is not a book that um, commands we do something to be blessed. Rather, the scriptures are, are always saying, you're blessed, now do this. And, and this is very hard to see in the Old Testament because of the different kinds of covenants that are used. Some covenants that God makes with Israel are universal. The big ones are universal, but there are some that are conditional, like staying in the land. And it's very easy to think, oh man, the Old Testament is just a book of rules because they had to do all this stuff to stay in the land. But in actuality, what had come even before any of those covenants was the absolute unconditional covenant that God was going to bless Abram's descendants into a blessing for the world. And, uh, and so, so there's a bit of confusion on this. It's, it's really easily seen in the New Testament, of course, where you take Paul's letters, for instance. Paul never, ever, ever uh, commands us to do something without first telling us what Jesus has done on our behalf. Um, so you take the, the best example of this is the book of Ephesians, where the first three chapters, nothing but uh, there's only one command that I found in the in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. It's just remember. And it's literally, here's all that Jesus has done. Here's what you used to be. Here's what you are now. Here's what he has done. 
It's incredible. And then he pivots in chapter four, verse one, you know, as a slave, um, or as a servant of the Lord or something like that, he says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And the word worthy there doesn't mean that you deserve it or that you earn it. The word worthy simply means that uh, it, it, it's the word axios, and it means live a life fitting for the calling you've received. And then Paul, for three chapters, goes into, here's what fitting looks like. You know, there's you take off um, um, uh, stealing and put on working, take off, uh, uh, you know, immoral language and put on language that strengthens and builds up. And he goes back and forth about taking off your old life, putting on your new life. But that's all done after the fact that he's told you, you have all of this blessing. In other words, moralism says, hey, this is what you must do to be blessed then do that. You do that, then you're blessed. And, the, and then, of course, the, the, the message of Jesus is just the reverse. You're blessed. Now do this. Live like you're blessed. You're, you're holy, so be holy. You're righteous, so be righteous. Right? You're a son or you're a daughter, so act like you're a part of God's family. And, 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 and showing that um, is, is absolutely critical in our teaching because very often... Uh, our teaching can end up in our quest for application. Our teaching just ends up simple moralism. Well, guys, if you uh, you know really want to have a good week, begin every day with some thank yous and make sure you have a quiet time. And okay, all those are incredible things. We should absolutely do them. But we don't do them in order to be blessed. We do them because we already are. And then that that difference is a world of difference between following Jesus and following Christianity. I mean, that is absolutely radical. So to show that even in these weird uh, Old Testament texts or, you know, you're like, no, no, there's, there's gospel here. There's gospel here. This is always, this is always coming in the context of prior blessing and grace. So five dimensions down, ladies and gentlemen, 29 minutes, one more dimension to go. Historical dimension, literary dimension, narrative dimension, subversive dimension, gospel dimension, and then lastly, uh, the experiential dimension. That that the very the very clear teaching of the Bible isn't that the Bible is just to be studied, uh, but is a, it is a path to be walked. It is a relationship to be lived. It is a covenant to be secure in. Um, and and so you know very clearly, I mean, Paul will say things like the goal of this instruction to you, Timothy, is love. That's how we know if it's successful. The goal isn't just that you have right doctrine, the goal is love. Or Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 13, right? If I can have all knowledge, but if I don't have love, I've got nothing. And so, so the, the Bible is meant to be experienced. God is a God of props, physical props. He's a God of pictures. He's a God of symbols. He's a God of reminders. We are people who for, are forgetful. And so God, you know, why do you take the bread and the cup to be reminded that the body was broken and the blood was spilled, right? Why do rainbows matter, right? Well, in the biblical story, they're the reminder that God will not f flood or uncreate the earth again in wrath. Um, uh, baptism, that you are a new person. Person, that the old has died, the new is, is, has come as you come out of the water. I mean, all of these are symbols, they're pictures. Um, the Israelite calendar was all based on reenacting the major events of God's grace to them. Hey, remember Passover and I delivered you guys and, and the, the feasts, right? Remember that all this comes from me and this bounty that you're about to experience in harvest. Remember that all comes from me. I mean, these, the whole calendar was built around remembering. And so the experiential dimension 
um, is probably my weakest. I'm I'm much more curious uh, and would stay on the intellectual side. And so there, you know, people who are incredibly gifted on. Okay, uh, and, and Jesus was the the best one, of course. He was always pulling stuff from his world, right? The kingdom of God is like a net. The kingdom of God is like a, a pearl. A kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field or like four different soils that respond to seed being thrown upon them. I and mean, Jesus was the master at, at doing this stuff. And so um, when we're teaching uh, and, and we learn to trust the text to do the work, well, what's that mean? Well, there are different dimensions of the text to show, that show the life in the text, right? Sometimes it's, man, this is a literary thing, and we think I think we misunderstand this if we don't respect the, the fact that this comes to us in a certain genre. Or, or you know, we to see the life in this, we really have to hear it the way the first century audience would have heard it. Or to see the life in this, we really have to taste this. We have to walk in this, right? If you keep my commands, Jesus said, um, you are my disciple. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, so there's something that Jesus says can only come from when the text is practiced, when the text is walked. And you can tell from listening to somebody if they've walked this text or not, right? If they've actually walked the things um, that, they're, that the text is talking about. And that is a massive, massive, massive um, uh, you know, a point of gravity or gravitas that people bring to the text is if they've lived it, if they've walked it. I mean, you can talk about pain and suffering, um, when you're 22, but there's something far more deep uh, about somebody who's teaching about pain and suffering when they're 68. And, um, you know, and they've walked uh, through some really, really difficult things. And I'm not saying you can't at 22. I'm just saying there's a different gravity to it. So I'm going to end it here. I hope it was helpful. Um, send in your questions, um, about anything that I said poorly that needs clarification or anything you want to explore more. I'd be super interested in that. Um, so grateful for you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for participating in the community, for tuning in and checking us out. And, um, and as always, my brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up. Um, his countenance to you and give you peace. We bless you in the name of our Jesus. Amen and amen. See you guys. Hey, thanks for listening to the Vox Podcast. Learn more about us at voxpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at the Vox Podcast. And now support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash voxpodcast.